This audio recording is presented by Jews for Judaism. We are dedicated to keeping Jews Jewish. www.jewsforjudaism.ca For all intents and purposes, we finished the Messianic proof text part of this course. We really have gone through the very, very best that Christians have to offer. We've seen that there's nothing they have at all that even comes close to proving Jesus was the Messiah. We're going to be doing now for the next part of the course is focusing on a number of theological issues which separate Christianity from Judaism. One of them, which is not a major one, but I think it's interesting, is the concept of Satan. If anyone here has gone through the entire Jewish Bible, anyone here read through the Tanakh from cover to cover? If you've done that, how many times do you find Satan mentioned in the Jewish Bible? How many? No. No. How many? Let's say, let's say for argument's sake, uh, less than a half dozen times. Considerably less than a half dozen times. Then the Jewish Bible, you should know, is about three times bigger than the Christian Bible. So we have a big, big Jewish Bible called the Tanakh. We have a small Christian Bible called the New Testament. In the Tanakh, right, Satan comes up, let's say, three or four times. And we'll look at those passages. In the New Testament, Satan comes up over 150 times. Now, this is very, very obvious when you speak to Jews and Christians. If anyone ever here, let's say, went to yeshiva for a number of years or hangs out with, with people that are, that are identifying as Jews, there is not a lot of discussion about Satan in day-to-day life. It's not the biggest topic of conversation. It comes up once in a while. In Christian circles, Satan is... Every other word, Muntag and Dunnerstick, it's Satan and Satan and Satan and Satan. Satan is pervasive, prevalent all over the place. So we see, just in terms of real life practice, a tremendous difference between Christianity and Judaism in terms of their focus on Satan. Is Satan a central figure, not a central figure? So in the Hebrew Bible, again, maybe mentioned three or four times. In the Christian Bible, all over the place, hundreds of times. That's one difference in terms of focus and in terms of emphasis. Now, what is the concept of Satan? Is there a Jewish concept of Satan? So, there's a a teaching I heard once, I think it really makes a tremendous amount of sense, that if you want to understand a concept in the Bible, go to the first place it's mentioned in the Bible. If you want to understand what is a Jewish, the biblical concept of any idea, find its first mention in the Bible. The first time that you find the word Satan in the Bible, the word Satan, is in Numbers chapter 22, verse 22. Easy to remember. 22, 22. This is the story, I'll put it into context for you, of Bilaam. Bilaam was a non-Jewish prophet who was hired to curse the Jewish people. And God doesn't want him to go, and he ends up going anyway, and he goes to curse the Jewish people. He's on, this, he's on his donkey, and he's, dry, he's riding on a donkey to go to the Jews. And it says that God sent an angel with a sword to block the path of the donkey and of Bilaam. Now, the, the donkey was much more perceptive than Bilaam because the donkey was able to see the, the angel blocking the way and Bilaam couldn't. And the Bible goes on to say that Bilaam was upset that the donkey didn't move because the donkey froze in its tracks. The donkey saw this dangerous angel up ahead. So the donkey's frozen in its tracks and Bilaam's upset because they're, they're not moving. So Bilaam starts to beat up on his donkey. Starts hitting the donkey. So in a, in a great biblical scene, it's one of the funniest scenes in the Bible, the donkey turns around and says to Bilaam, what are you hitting me for? So in verse 22, 
The Bible says as follows, God got angry that Bilaam was going, I mean, going to curse the Jews. So an angel of God stood on the road, Lissatan lo, Lissatan, to be a Satan to him. Not a great translation. So the way it's normally translated is the angel came to stand in the road to be an obstacle to him, to be a roadblock to him, to be a adversary to him, to oppose him. So the word Satan in Hebrew here is not a proper name, and it means here, in the context of this story, that the angel came to be a Satan to him. It means the angel came to block him, to be a roadblock, to be an obstacle, to be an adversary. We're going to see that actually this word comes up many times in the Hebrew Bible. Not as a proper name, but the word Satan comes up many times in the Hebrew Bible in the context of an adversary or an obstacle. First Kings chapter 11, and God stirred him up another adversary. It's the word Satan. First Kings 11 verse 25, and he was an adversary to Israel, a Satan all the days of Solomon. Second Samuel 19 verse 22, and David said, What have I to do with you, sons of Zuria, that you should this day be adversaries to me? Again, the word Satan. So usually, when the word Satan appears in the Hebrew Bible, it refers to something or someone that's an obstacle, an adversary, an opponent, a roadblock. However, the word Satan is used on several occasions as a proper name. The most famous one is in the book of Job, chapter six, chapter 1. In the book of Job, chapter 1, we're told that there was a very righteous man named Eov, named Job. And God was very proud of this righteous man. He was a very righteous person. So it says in verse 6, One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So here Satan is a, is a, a noun. It's referring to a, a being. God said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and for on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So God took a little pride, a little nachas in Job. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. And his possessions have increased in the land. Meaning, of course he's righteous and he loves you, God. He's got a great life. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. So in verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, Very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. What you have here is Satan coming as one of the angels, one of the messengers, one of the servants of God. And he is given a particular task. The task here is to test Job. And what's important is, and this is crucial for the rest of the passages, that Satan's powers are clearly circumscribed by God. What we're going to see in the Jewish sources here is that Satan is not an independent being in competition with God, but Satan is one of God's angels, 
And Satan has a task here, and God clearly limits the power of Satan and says, look, I'm giving you a certain amount of power, but you can't kill him. Satan doesn't have any power here to argue against God and say, I'll do what I want. He's, he's on a very, very short leash. We'll see this is a very important concept in a second. We see similarly in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, Zechariah, chapter 3, then he showed me the high priest. This is a vision also, by the way. It's very interesting. This is also a vision. Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan here is the accuser. And God says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. So here again, Satan is in a subordinate position to God. He's being rebuked by God. It's interesting, by the way, that the two stories so far are stories of parables, of visions, not necessarily real-life stories. Page 9. And here we have the final citation. Let's look first at First Chronicles chapter 21. First Chronicles 21. Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. There's a concept in the Bible where God does not really appreciate when the Jewish people are counted. I'm not going to get into it tonight. But it's always a problem in the Bible when the Jews are counted, when people count the Jewish people. In the five books of Moses, whenever the Jews are counted, they had to bring a special sacrifice to atone for that. But in any event, it says here that Satan incited David to count the people of Israel. However, in 2 Samuel 24, right on top of that, it says again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them, saying, go count the people of Israel and Judah. So we have here ostensibly two contradictory passages. One says that God incited David to count the Jewish people and one says that Satan incited David to count the Jewish people. How can we reconcile these two verses? It's very simple. If we understand Satan as simply an agent or a messenger of God, God incites David through the agency of Satan. Now we have here a verse in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 7 which is important. God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Tanakh, God is responsible for everything. Everything is under the jurisdiction of God. Evil angels and good angels, the Satan, devils, everything in the world that can be described as quote-unquote evil is created by God and is under the power of God. Ultimately, it comes from God. We don't believe that evil things come by themselves or from evil powers that run around the world fighting against God. Everything comes from God. I have here a, a quote from the Encyclopedia Judaica. It says, He, Satan, is clearly subordinate to God. And each of the three times Satan comes up in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, he is simply a messenger, a subordinate to God, a member of his suite who is unable to act without his permission. Nowhere is he in any sense a rival of God. That's important. In the Jewish Bible, Satan is a messenger of God. I'll just tell you one more piece here that will make it a little bit more juicy. Rabbinic literature says that Satan is the greatest blessing that God created for us. That's the, that's the slant in rabbinic literature on Satan. That Satan's a great blessing. Where do we see this? In the beginning of Genesis, it says that each day that God created something, 
he saw that it was good. And on day two and day three and day four, God saw that it was good. At the end of the creation story, it says God saw everything and he saw it was very good. So the Talmud says that the term very good applies to the evil inclination. Our evil inclination, which the Talmud says, is Satan. The Satan is the Yitzhahara, is our evil inclination. The Talmud says that without this evil inclination, a person wouldn't get married, wouldn't have children, wouldn't get a job, wouldn't do anything. What, it, what it's saying is that the Satan here, the evil inclination, isn't evil. It's our, in Freudian terms, the id, or the ego. That's, that's, it, in, in secular literature, you'd call the evil inclination our ego, or our id. And in Jewish terms, that is a very vital force. If we didn't have this passion inside of us, we wouldn't accomplish anything in life. So the Torah's slant on Satan is that since God created everything, this, this is what I'm trying to show you from the book of Isaiah, since God created everything in the world, everything was created by God, all the angels, even Satan, and God says that everything he created was good, and then he says something was very good, Talmud says that very good applies to the negative forces in the world. Now, why is that very good? So, one reason is that these negative forces become part of the vital energy that we have as human beings that drives us to do like the sexual impulse. The other thing is that, and this is the way the word is usually used in the Bible, Satan means to be an adversary or roadblock or an obstacle. The way the word is usually used in the Bible is that God has in the world not a creature with a tail and a pitchfork and horns. That's not the Jewish concept of Satan because it's not so much a person but an experience. An experience can be an experience where God has put a roadblock in front of us. So any time in life where there is something which tempts us to do the wrong thing, that's considered a satanic experience. That is satan. That is an adversary, a roadblock, an obstacle. Now why is that a good thing? Why are these obstacles, roadblocks, adversaries good? It's very simple. If we were to go through life where there wasn't this satan, this satanic force, there'd be no potential for virtue in the world. There'd be no potential for virtue. If we lived in a world where there were no temptations, no adversaries, no roadblocks, just I'll give you a few examples. The Bible says not to commit adultery. It's one of the rules of the Bible. Now, if there was no sexual impulse, sexual attraction, if every opposite-sex person looked to us like a sack of potatoes, we wouldn't be virtuous by not having adultery. Adultery is only a virtuous thing to overcome when it's tempting. When the Bible says don't eat cheeseburgers, for example, there might be some reward, there might be some virtue for a person to overcome their temptations to have a Big Mac and not eat it. If the Bible had said, thou shalt not eat radioactive sludge, so that was the commandment, so there's no, so people are not righteous by avoiding radioactive waste. No one's tempted to eat it. So we're put in a world where we have a lot of friction. That's the, like, the term I like to use. The satanic force is friction. A world without friction, the image I like to use, is a world where you're just walking on like a, a nice, smooth, oiled surface where you just keep on walking in place. You don't get anywhere. There's no resistance to overcome and the friction of the world allows us to grow. What happens is, when you come up against an obstacle, when you come up against an adversary, when you come up against Satan, right? it's a roadblock. So one of two things can happen. Either you crash into it and you fall down, 
And then it's negative. Then it's the evil inclination. Then it was a negative experience. Or you have to climb over it. And by climbing over obstacles in life, you were able to develop your spiritual muscles. If you didn't get a chance to grow and climb over things, you would atrophy. So these experiences, these forces in the world, we consider to be very, very positive for us because without these experiences to overcome, without tests, without temptations, without roadblocks, without obstacles, we'd be like amoeba, we'd be like jellyfish, we'd be nothing, right? We'd go we'd slide through life and there'd be no virtue. God would never have a chance to say, you know what, what a great guy. So that, that's what's happening in the book of Job. The, 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 Satan is saying, God, Job has it too easy. For him, it's no big deal to be righteous. You've got to give him some more obstacles. You've got to give him some more roadblocks. You've got to throw him some more curveballs. So that's what the satanic experience is. The satanic experience is when God tests us with these obstacles to overcome. Hopefully, we become bigger people by climbing over them. We become bigger by navigating these obstacles and roadblocks. So our slant on Satan, I'm, I'm going to sum up here, is number one, the Bible doesn't talk about it that often. When it does, it mentions Satan in the context usually of a roadblock, an adversary, an obstacle. In the few times that he's mentioned as a force, as a personified force, he's simply an agent of God, an angel that God keeps on a very short leash. He's under the control of God and he's there to tempt us and to provide an obstacle for us in life. Yeah. What I wanted to share with you on page 9 were the Christian passages about Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. I mentioned this previously to you. The New Testament says that one of the reasons that the Jews don't believe in Jesus is that they were blinded by Satan. So in New Testament terms, the God of this world that blinds the minds of them which believe not, that's Satan. The New Testament here is calling Satan the God of this world. Look in this passage I have from the Interpreter's Bible Commentary to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Paul, the author of 2 Corinthians, sees this world as a battleground in which Satan and his hosts contend with God and his forces for the lives of men. And this is the exact opposite concept we have in the Jewish Bible. In the Jewish Bible, everyone is under the control of God. It's, it's God's army. In God's army is Satan. Satan is one of the guys in God's army. In the Christian sense, there's a battle in the world between two armies. There isn't one army. It's God and it's Satan. And these are competing forces in the world. And we're going to see that in the Christian Bible, it's not as if this force called Satan is under the control of God. It's a competing force against God. So powerful that it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that he's called the God of this world. The same idea that Satan is called the God of this world you see in John chapter 12, John 14, and John 16, where Satan is called the prince of this world. That's how powerful Satan is. Let's look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So it says here that Jesus came, the Son of God came, to destroy the works of the devil. Ostensibly, before Jesus came, there was no way of dealing with the devil. It was a force in the world that couldn't be dealt with. 
And the entire purpose of Jesus' coming was to smash Satan. Now, one of the problems of Christianity is Jesus did a pretty lousy job because none of the deeds of Satan have been smashed. I mean, there's nothing, no visible changes. And what happens in Christian theology is that Jesus really won't do anything against Satan until the very, 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 very end. But what's important here to realize is that what 1 John chapter 3 says is that Satan was here to oppose God from the beginning and that Jesus came to essentially finally be able to defeat Satan. There was no way of doing anything against Satan until Jesus came. Ephesians chapter 6, these are the small books in the Testament, by the way. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It doesn't speak about Satan and the devil in terms of being under the yoke of God, but as an independent force ruling the world. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. Satan has his own will. He's not subservient to God in any passage in the New Testament. John chapter 8, this is one of the most anti-Semitic verses in the New Testament. Jesus says to the Jewish people, You are of your father, the devil. The devil is the father of the Jewish people. And the lusts of your father you do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own. Satan speaks on his own. He's his own independent contractor. For he is a liar and the father of it. Finally, in Acts chapter 26, verse 16, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of these things which you have seen, and of those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles unto now, unto whom now I send you. Verse 18, to do what? This is, by the way, speaking to Paul. You are being sent to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. It's not that there's God who controls Satan. There's the power of Satan against God. And that's the purpose of the gospel, is to get people away from Satan to God. In Judaism, in the Bible, Satan is on God's team. In the New Testament, Satan is the manager of an opposing team. Okay, enough of Satan. Now on to the Trinity. We're not going to discuss tonight the whole question of whether or not God has three parts or 15 parts or 100 parts. I just read there was an article, if you, I don't know if you saw this week's Globe and Mail, the weekend edition had an article about a televangelist who came from Toronto named Benny Hinn. So Benny Hinn got into a lot of trouble because he said, really, there's not three parts to God, but nine parts, because each of the three parts has three parts. So he claims there's a trinity in the Father and a trinity in the Son and a trinity in the Holy Spirit, so it's nine. The, the real issue for tonight is, does the Hebrew Bible teach us that the Messiah is to be a human being or the Messiah is supposed to be God? That's the real question. First question tonight, then. Is there any indication in the Hebrew Bible that there is a plurality in the Godhead? The Jewish position is that God is a unity, a simple, absolute unity. God is one. The Christian concept of God is God is a trinity. So just quickly, on page 10, I'm going to read just a few of these verses. Deuteronomy chapter 4. 
verse 35 and 39. Unto you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God, there is none else beside him. Know therefore this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven and above and upon the earth beneath there is none else. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 43, verse 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me. There is no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I am... Even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Isaiah 45, top of the second column, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is none else. So one of the things that becomes painfully obvious when you read the Bible, by the way, there are hundreds of verses like this, is that God keeps on saying, whenever God speaks about himself, I am one. He says it a hundred times. I am one, I am one, I am one. There's no one else beside me. I'm the first and I'm the last. Now, if there was such a thing as a trinity or a triune God, there could have been a time where God said, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a Holy Spirit. The problem with Christianity is God never says in the Hebrew Bible, that he is a three-part God. He's constantly saying, until we get nauseous, I'm one. Don't forget it, I'm one. And it's over and over and over again. There isn't any effort. That's the, the thing you have to appreciate. There's no effort at all by God to let us in on the fact that he really is a three-part God. And there are so many passages where God could have said it. In all these passages where he speaks about himself, he could have said, there's me, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Ghost. That would have made Christianity so much more tenable and plausible. We're going to see that the, the, the divinity of Jesus, the divinity of the Messiah, was never a clear teaching in Christianity. We're going to see that even to this day, Christians are not in agreement on whether or not Jesus is God or not. That's how difficult a concept it is. Forget about Jews not liking it. Within the Christian church, it's a bone of contention. Um, just on a light note, in the second column here, I share with you a number of reverse proof texts. So, for example, Psalm 146, verse 3 says, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. So Christians claim that Jesus was the Son of Man. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And he was the person that brings salvation. So the Hebrew Bible says in Psalm 146, don't trust in the Son of Man in whom there is no salvation. Another, By the way, that's not the explanation of the verse. It's just a cute way of looking at it if you want to be cute. That's page 10, second column, Psalm 146, verse 3. Also, right underneath that, Ezekiel 28. Again, answering the Christian idea that the Messiah is supposed to be God. Will you say before him that slays you, I am God? But you shall be a man and no God in the hand of him that slays you. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken it, says the Lord God. You could say, if you wanted to be cute, that here God is saying about Jesus that you're not a man, that you're not a God, you're simply a man, and you will die the death of the uncircumcised, the Romans crucified people. 
Anyway, that's what happens when you start playing with proof texts. Neither of these verses are referring to Jesus, but I just wanted to show you that we could have quote-unquote proof texts as well. Back to the topic at hand. Christians may say, well, isn't it possible, wouldn't it be possible for God to come down into a man? Wouldn't, isn't it possible? Couldn't God, if he wanted to, be incarnated into the form of a human being? It's, a, it's an honest question. It's a good question. So we would have to say, what to that? Could God do it if he wanted to? Possibly. We could also ask the question, could God put himself into a golden calf if he wanted to? The answer would be yes. God could if he wanted to. But the question is not, could God do it, but would God do it? So one of the things we know from the Bible is that God would not take on human form because he keeps on telling us over and over and over and again in the Bible, I'm not a man, I have no form. So if God is to be understood as someone who has human form, why would he say over and over again in the Bible, I'm not a man, I have no form? He'd be misleading people. If he was to come at some future point in time, he shouldn't say I'm not a man because then people wouldn't recognize him as a man. Let's just look at a few of these sources. <clears throat> Hosea chapter 11. This is the second column on page 10, right in the middle towards the bottom. Hosea 11. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. First Samuel 15, the same thing. Also, the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie, neither a son of man that he should repent. So you have references in the Bible where God says he's not a man. It's inappropriate for God to then come back as a man. Also, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that at Mount Sinai, we didn't see any form at all. Look on the right-hand side of your sheets, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. And God spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of God. You heard the voice of the words, but saw no form. Only you heard a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform even the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them upon two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you may do them in the land where you go over to possess it. Take ye therefore good heed. What does God warn them over and over again? By the way, one of the things that God is most sensitive about in the Bible, I mean, God says to us, look, Jewish people, I'm very sensitive about this. I hate idolatry. I hate it. And he's always warning the Jewish people. Look at verse 15. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for you saw no manner of form on the day that the Lord spoke unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you corrupt yourselves and make a graven image the similitude of any figure the likeness of male or female. Take heed unto yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and made you a, and, and you make a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. There are a number of other passages here where God speaks about his hatred of idolatry. Does the Bible teach that the Messiah will be God or be a human being? That's the question in hand. That's the real issue between Christianity and Judaism. Does the Bible teach the Messiah is to be God himself or simply a human being? Look at chapter 11 of Isaiah. This is on the left-hand side of page 11. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of 
knowledge and the fear of the Lord and shall make of him quick understanding in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. Isaiah says here three times that the Messiah will be someone who fears God. The Messiah will be someone who fears God. Now, if the Messiah is supposed to be God, it's very strange that the Bible here would tell us that God would be afraid, would fear God. This would have been a very good place for Isaiah to say, not that the Messiah would have the fear of God, but that this person that will come forth from Jesse will be God. Look at Jeremiah chapter 30. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I'll raise up for them. There's two people here. There's the Lord their God and someone else named David their king. It doesn't say here, it doesn't make an equivalence between David the king and the Messiah and God. There's two different people discussed, two different uh, beings discussed here, the Messiah and God. <coughs> Same thing in Ezekiel 34. And I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. That's the Messiah. And then, and I will be, the, I the Lord will be their God. So I'll be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. So there's the Messiah who's not God and then there's God. Ezekiel 37, the same thing. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. So they shall be my people and I will be their God. I, God, will be their God. There's a God in the world. Then, and then David, my servant, will be king over them. So there's God who's God and there's the Messiah Who's not God? So the Bible is constantly contrasting the Messiah, human being, to God who's divine. Top of the page, Hosea 3. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, and without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without trophim. And afterwards shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God, that's God, and then David their king. Two different beings and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The king, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. So there's God and there's the Messiah, two separate beings, not one as Christians maintain. There's a quote here from a book called Why You Should Believe in the Trinity. This is a book that was written by a fundamentalist Christian against the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus was God. They don't believe in the Trinity. And this was a book written by an Orthodox born-again Christian named Bowman that tries to convince Jehovah's Witnesses that they should believe in the Trinity. And there's a quote from his book. All Trinitarians agree that the ideas about God expressed in the doctrine of the Trinity are not found directly in the Old Testament. That's, that's a friendly witness, we say. There's not an Orthodox rabbi writing it. It's a born-again Christian saying, there's no information about the Trinity in the Jewish Bible. Where do you find it? 
ostensibly in the Christian Bible. I'm just going to end tonight by showing you that there is almost no reason to read the New Testament and say that there's a belief that Jesus was God. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And when he had gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why call thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. This would have been a great place for Jesus to not deny he's God, but to say, you want eternal life, I'll give it to you. But Jesus here clearly dissociates himself from God. Same in Mark 13. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day, Jesus says, and that hour, knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. So he says that the time when the end of the world will take place, no one knows, not the Son of God, not the angels, no one, only God in heaven. John 14, you have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would not, you would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for the Father is greater than I. 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. It can't get much clearer than this. John chapter 20. Jesus said to her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father, and your Father, and to my God, and to your God. Well, here is Jesus speaking about his God. 1 Corinthians 11. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ, that's Messiah, by the way, the head of the Messiah is God. And finally, a verse uh, from history, so to speak. We've mentioned this before, where Rabbi Gamaliel says of the trial of Peter, And now I say to you, restrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found even to fight against God. So in the trial of Peter, Rabbi Gamaliel says, Leave them alone, they're not doing anything wrong. So it's clear from the book of the New Testament, books of the New Testament, is that the followers of Jesus did not believe he was God. He never claimed to be God. He consistently says he isn't God. In the one or two passages where he seems to say he's God, for example, there's a verse where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That's taken to be a proof that Jesus claimed to be God. Clearly, when he says I and the, fa and the Father are one, He's expressing his solidarity with God. I can say the same thing. Me and God, we're like this. We're one. But it doesn't mean he identifies as God. All the verses we've seen, he clearly dissociates himself from being God. And the first Christians we see didn't believe he was God. If they did, Rabbi Gamaliel wouldn't say that Peter was an okay kosher Jew. Finally, all of the literature we have from the early Christians after the New Testament, from the Ebionites, from the Nazareans, all testify to the fact that the early Jewish Christians did not believe Jesus was God. They simply believed he was the Messiah. This was a pagan concept that was later tacked on to Christianity in order to make Christianity more appealing to the pagan world. Jews for Judaism hopes that you have found this audio recording to be helpful and informative. Jews for Judaism is an international organization dedicated to countering the multi-million dollar efforts of Christian missionary groups that target Jews, the impact of destructive cults and Eastern religions, and the growing rate of intermarriage that is devastating the Jewish community. 
Jews for Judaism achieves its goals through one-on-one counseling services and educational programs and materials that connect Jewish people to the spiritual depth, beauty, and wisdom of Judaism. Please contact Jews for Judaism if we can help you. www.jewsforjudaism.ca Keeping Jews Jewish.